In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast. My name is Max Wardell, co-hosting with Carter Kowalczyk, and we're joined today by Ben Brewster. Ben is a 15th round draft choice of the Chicago White Sox out of Maryland University, where he earned his bachelor's degree in exercise science. He went on to achieve a strength and conditioning certification known as the CSCS through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He is an author of the book, Building the 95 Mile Per Hour Body, a primer on strength development and nutrition for the elite pitcher. He is additionally and this is his main endeavor, is he's the owner and founder of Tread Athletics, which is providing services of strength and conditioning, pitching coaching, and nutritional coaching, as well as other things to, to uh, throwing athletes and pitchers. So welcome to the podcast, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me, Max and Carter. Uh, excited to be here. And I've, everything I've seen from you guys has been uh, top-notch. So I'm excited to have a little bit of a conversation here and uh, pick your guys' brain a little bit too. Absolutely. Awesome. We appreciate you coming on. You know, we've had some back and forth on Twitter and um, some other social media and we love your posts. So we're pretty excited for this one. Awesome. Ben, Let's do it. You've had an extensive journey throughout your playing career and post baseball career. Could you kind of walk us through the various milestones you hit and maybe how your perspective has changed along the way? Yes. Yeah, so I'll give kind of the, the spark notes of my career for, for those who don't know. Um, so basically, I was a 15-year-old kid who had always played, you know, non-competitive, uh, you know, baseball, like, you know, rec baseball. Um, I was always relatively athletic, um, so I had that going for me, but I never really uh, devoted a ton of time or dedication to it. I never had that thought in my mind growing up that I was going to be a professional player, that I was going to play in college. It never really occurred to me. I was one of those kids who played all this, all sports, really. I was a normal athletic kid. Um, I ended up getting to, uh, getting to high school as a freshman, and I go from being pretty much the best player on all my little league teams to suddenly I'm one of the worst players on the field in high school where you know, I'm playing against seniors and juniors. And to me, that was just kind of a very impressionable time in my life where I was, I was in high school, I was struggling for the first time really in my life and, and something that I, I loved and enjoyed. And it was kind of a wake-up call for me uh, to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my life? Like, what am I going to do with high school? How am I going to make the most of this? What am I going to do after high school? Um, you know, what am I going to study in college? So I had all these questions starting to circle, and I had this taste of failure. Um, and so that really spawned the start of me thinking, like, okay, well, you know, I love baseball. Why don't I actually try to dedicate myself to it and see, see what I can do? And so it was this total, like, naive uh, belief that, hey, there's other people throwing 95 miles an hour. Like, I'm throwing 70 at that, that time, like 6, 350 pounds. Like, why not? Why not me? And so I was totally naive at that point. I didn't know anything, but I was like, well, it's just like, you know, a bunch of muscles and bones and levers. And like, why would somebody be able to do it and not me? So, um, you know, I've, I've since learned to, to your question, like, it's not necessarily as simple as like, oh, I, if you want to throw 95 hard enough, like eventually, like there is some genetic component to being able to do that, obviously. And I've, right. I've since learned, like, I do have some of those genetic factors that made such a transformation for me possible and ultimately being able to throw, you know, 98 and, and hopefully beyond here uh, in the future. But, uh, you know, I've since learned if you're 
height, you know, fast twitch fiber uh, composition. Like there's all sorts of factors that do go into that, that very hard upper, uh, upper limit that you might have, that upper genetic limit. Um, but within that, I think so many people aren't even close at all to what they could be um, from a performance standpoint. So anyway, I just dove into it. I started reading Paul Nyman, Set Pro. I started, you know, I bought Stephen Ellis's Tough Cuff manual. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the Let's Talk Pitching forums. Like, you know, I created a pitching log under, my name was Lanky Lefty. So I was one of the, you know, <laughs> I had, had a log there for like eight years. I became the most viewed like pitching journal or log. This is before Instagram. So now Instagram is the version of that where all these kids do that. But um, I basically dove right in. I was reading for hours and hours a day. I was, you know, in my backyard practicing. I had no idea what I was doing. I was, you know, getting a free Joe DeFranco download program and doing that. And, you know, I didn't have any money. So I was like, over the summers, I was biking five miles round trip to go be a lifeguard. And I didn't realize like that was a terrible idea. Um, I thought that running would get my legs in shape for baseball so i ran cross country my first two years in the in the off seasons like that was a terrible idea so i was just making a ton of ton of mistakes but i was learning as i went um i know you wanted to talk about long distance running for pitchers and we can get into that but this was even before like anything had come out about energy systems and specificity and that being a bad idea like we were still in the very much in the dark ages people don't realize that like 2007 2008 like there was nothing out there so there's been an absolute explosion in the past 10, 12, 13 years um, that people nowadays don't really appreciate fully what wasn't out there back then, like before uh, before driveline came along, before Cressy started dispelling long-distance running myths. Like some of these things that seem so obvious now were not very obvious back then. Um, right. And so I, w- I was dealing initially with, you know, there wasn't enough information. And now it's almost the opposite. Now there's almost too much information out there. And people don't know where to turn and who to trust at this point. Um, so I kind of fight and claw my way through high school. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm injuring myself every other week, you know, trying crazy training methods. Um, you know, I'm just trying to gain weight. Uh, don't really know about calories, macronutrients, how important that is. I wasn't really tracking too consistently. So I was making some progress just as a total beginner, but nothing anywhere close to what I could have made if I had known, known what I know now. And so I ended up a senior, uh, I think about 185 pounds by then I'm touching 87. So I'm like 83, five touching 87. So nothing crazy, but I started off at 70 to 73. Um, and that's not good enough to get me any, any looks from any colleges because my mentality again, naively was like, I have to play division one baseball or, or bus. Like if it's, it's either D one or like my career's over. So like I put myself in this, this mentality where it's like, it's either D one or my career's over. And I actually think that in the end that and that helped me because I went into this tryout at Maryland. Um, you know, I was already committed to going there as a student. I figured I'm going to try to walk onto the team. If I don't make it, I'm going to just keep trying out, trying out every year until I make it. So like, that was my plan. It was to commit to a school that was, it was in state. It had the top ranked kinesiology, uh, kinesiology program. It's like, I'm going to study something that's going to give me as good of a chance as possible. Like maybe something I learned in one of these classes is going to be the difference maker and help. Um, and hopefully I make it the first year. If I don't make it, like surely I'll throw 89 by the next year and then I'll make it. And if I don't make it that year, surely I can get to 90 the next year. And like, so that was my mentality. It was like, if it takes me four years to make the team. I'm going to make this team. Um, but I go to this walk-on tryout. Uh, it's not really a walk-on tryout. It was like a summer recruiting camp. So it wasn't even like they were looking for a walk-on. It was a recruiting camp. There was sophomores, juniors, whatever. And so I'm already committed to, the, to going to Maryland like two months later. This was in July, okay. June or July. And so I go to this camp and I'm, you know, sitting 85, 86, 
striking everybody out. Um, I'm kind of a funky lefty. So, you know, it helps, it helps a little just for context. Like most guys that are just coming in throwing 85 as stock Brady's probably wouldn't be in that situation. Um, but I had a good, had a good showing. The coach came up to me, coach Eric Backage. He's now the uh, Michigan's head coach. They went to the college World series uh, fairly recently. I guess that was last year. Um, and he's kind of a fiery guy. He comes up to me. He tries to like intimidate me. He's like, okay, you've thrown like two, two inter-squad innings. If you can go out there and do it again and strike out the next three batters, then you'll have a spot on the team. And so he tried to like put the pressure on me. Um, but as it turned out, I, you know, it wasn't the best competition ever, but I ended up doing, doing that. And he came up to me afterwards and said like, Hey, you have a spot on the team, you know, welcome aboard. And so, um, I think just every every point of the journey, I've had this kind of naive belief, and then I've attacked it with everything I I possibly could, and then it's happened to have worked out. Um, but there's definitely certain inflection points where it could have not worked out had things gone a little bit differently. Um, so I fully recognize, like I had a little bit of genetic genetics on my side, some natural athleticism, some good you know mobility, um, and then I had certain key events that that went my way, uh, you know, through the process. So anyway, I walk onto the team. I'm basically the worst player on the team that fall. Uh, everybody's throwing like 88 to 92. And I'm here as this, you know, shrimpy lefty, 180 pounds. Uh, you know, at that point in the fall, I actually dropped below. I was throwing like 82, 83. You still um, had those guys. You still had those guys you struck out at least. You not say too much. <laughs> well, yeah, so they, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't Maryland players though. This, this was like, uh, uh, this was like all the high school recruiting camp where they bring in like all these kids that want to play college baseball and they, gotcha. they market it as like a, uh, a recruiting thing, but it's really like instructional camp. And they're, you know, if they like a kid, they'll like tell a D3 coach about him and be like, hey, like check out this kid. So it's, okay. it's not one of those things where people really okay. get recruited out of it. Um, it's one of those things where it's a moneymaker for the assistant coach who like runs it. Yeah. Okay. So the the idea that you can go into one of these and just you're going to make the team and like have a spot is like not a thing. I didn't really, I didn't know that. So I went in with this this crazy mentality, like that, that was going to be the case. And I I think almost having that that degree of ignorance was helpful in the end, just with the mentality. Cause I went into that thing with a fight or flight uh, mentality, like package was like all about like, you know, fiery guys. I was like counting my glove in between innings. I was like fist pumping strikeouts. I'm like, we're in this recruiting camp where like these other kids are like, you know, not taking it that seriously. I'm like, this is life or death for me. And so I think that probably played a role too. He was like, he saw this like sidearm lefty, like striking kids out, like just pump fist pumping. And I think that that spoke to him a little bit because, you know, he, he saw something, obviously I wasn't necessarily like a top ACC caliber player at that point, but he saw enough in me that he, that he was able to give me a shot. So um, that's awesome. You know, Pretty, pretty grateful to him for that. That's awesome. Where'd you go from there? So uh, kind of yeah, so, on the pathway following that. So it was basically three years of, you know, struggling and grinding and trying to figure out, you know, why I sucked. You know, I still had pretty raw mechanics. Um, you know, I was like an all arm kid, a pretty athletic kid, but at that point I was throwing all arm like 85. Um, and I, I knew watching these other players, so one of the best things for me was that I made that team because I was surrounded by guys with better movement patterns. And I started to realize like, okay, yes, the first year I was, I was weaker than a lot of the kids, but by the end of that year, like I was one of the top, you know, five to 10 stronger kids. I, you know, pretty explosive. And so that, it took that variable off the table. I was like, okay, these guys are throwing 93. I know I'm a better athlete than them. I, there's nothing that there's, there's no variables here that they can do that I can't vertical jump, you know, 
upper body strength, lower body strength, like any number, like mobility. I couldn't figure out why they're doing that. And I, I wasn't. So it took all the variables off the table, except how my movement efficiency was on the mound. And I knew that I didn't dissociate my hips and shoulders. Well, um, I knew the sequencing was off. So then for me, it was all about like, can I figure out how to move my body through space and time more efficiently? And I didn't see any major blocks or reasons that that couldn't be the case. It was more just a patterning thing. Like I didn't know how to shift my weight properly. I didn't know what it actually meant to use your legs. Like when you threw, and I just, I'd always had people say like, Oh, just do like a balance drill or do a Hersheiser drill. Like that'll help you. And like nothing worked or just long toss and you'll, your body will naturally figure right. it out. It's like, none of these things right. actually helped me feel what it was like to use my lower half. And so I knew there was a disconnect, but it helped me to be around players that had really clean, relatively clean, efficient patterns compared to me because I had all these visual examples of what it should look like on a daily basis. Like my catch play partner ended up being a second rounder. And a lot of what I was trying to emulate was from his lower half and how he shifted his weight and gathered his center of mass. And um, again, it took several years, but every year I was slowly steadily climbing. I think I was touching 88, 89 by the end of freshman year. I hit 92-ish um, by junior year. Um, and then, then I started to put it together a little bit by senior year. I was a 91, 94 guy, touching 95. Again, sidearm lefty. And so I finally started to get playing time that year. Um, threw enough innings, threw well enough to get picked up in the 15th round as a senior sign. But it was every single year it was like just fighting and clawing, trying to, trying to find a way to get on the field. So it was and, by no means an easy process. Uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but just something you said was, you know, this time period where you were just kind of using trial and error, but it, it's more so your thought process and your drive to actually become something that, you know, you can see or you're, you want to reach your potential and that thought process of, hey, I'm going to research this stuff. I'm going to try this. I'm going to do what these successful people doing. This is kind of what, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you get people who are saying, you know, I'm tired of this kid asking me questions or, or something to that effect. But in a way, that's kind of what we're looking for um, in an athlete is somebody who really wants to discover, you know, these types of answers. And, you know, that sounds like something that's led to your success as an athlete. And then, you know, ultimately, uh, in the role that you're in now where you're actually training athletes. Yeah. So it seems self-evident to guys like, you know, you and I, because that's our mentality is like, that's how we've gotten to where we are right now is the curiosity, the, the learning, the questioning, the critical thinking. But to a lot of coaches, that's, that's threatening. Like a lot of coaches see, you know, if you tell a kid to do something and then they ask why, or can you explain that? Like it's, a, it's seen as a threat. And I don't, I don't view it that way at all. When, when my athletes, like I encourage them to question me. I think that that's a sign of someone who's going to be successful is if they have that questioning mentality, but coming up and having, you know, several different coaches throughout college, several different coaches throughout high school, you know, a dozen coaches in pro ball at different levels and different times. I mean, most coaches see that as a threat and it's actively discouraged among most players. Whereas yeah. that's, again, like you, like you said, I think that's a sign of, of an athlete who's going to be successful. And I think if you look at the highest levels, the guys that are at the consistently Cy Young award winners, all stars, the guys at the highest level are that way. They're consistent students of the game. They think for themselves, they're not just, blindly listening to whatever pitching coach they happen to have been assigned to that year for whatever level they're at. Right. So and that's, it's, that's it's such a, it's not key. just coaches too. I mean, I see it now. I mean, it's exacerbated with the online stuff. 
but I've ran into similar situations myself, you know, going, you know, playing up through the ranks and people get, you know, it's, uh, it's almost like you're challenging them and they're intimidated by it. But now, you know, when you're actually sending a tweet out or you're sending a message, I think these things become even larger because there's no inflection in your tone there, you know, people can't assess your body language. And now, uh, you know, something that's an innocent, uh, question or something like that in the uh, Twitter sphere, I guess I would say is, is now considered a, you know, it's a battle. So that's, you know, egos and tribalism, like all this stuff comes into it when it's really, it's not about that. Um, One of the quotes I I love so much is it's not about who's right. It's about what's right. Yeah. It's it's not about like who wins this argument or like we're having a discussion right now. Like I'm not trying to win an argument. You're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to, you know, share ideas and, and come to some, understanding of, of the truth or at least a closer approximation to to the truth and so yeah, I, awesome. I think ego ego takes way too big of a role in I mean I'm sure every industry and it's just a human a human nature but I think the more that we can tame that the, the closer the better chance we'll actually have of helping our athletes or the better chance as an athlete you have of um, you know if, if you don't just blindly listen to that I, I think there needs to be a, a little bit of a rebellious not rebellious but you know not blindly following critical thinking, um, not just taking someone's, someone's word because they played at a higher level than you, but saying, does that make sense? You know, testing it, trying it again, it's trial and error. Um, it's not just saying I'm going to do these 10 drills because so-and-so guru wrote it, wrote them down in the list and said, this is the best way to train. Like maybe right. you try that, but if eight of them don't help you, then maybe you have to scratch those and keep, keep moving forward. Like that's the whole, the Bruce Lee quote of, you know, discard, you know, take what's useful, discard what's useless and just keep doing that, keep iterating. Um, you know, my, my mechanics, my patterns, again, like I told you very early on, um, maybe not very early, but by year four, by the time I got to college, I knew that my main issue was how I moved on the mound. It wasn't that I was missing some amount of mobility. Um, it wasn't that I wasn't strong, powerful, like, sure. I I got a little bit stronger over the course of college, but I like day one, I was throwing 87, 86, I could have been throwing 94 with the body I had. I just didn't know how to move that body efficiently to transfer energy ultimately into the ball. Um, And so, you know, I, I was basically, I was iterating. I was, I was trying everything I could. If it worked, I was keeping it. If it didn't work, I was discarding it. And so I, my mechanics had some crazy changes throughout the years. Like I would, I would try some crazy arm paths. I'd try some crazy foot positions, like different leg lifts, like, I probably had 10 different sets of mechanics over those first three years of college until I found what ultimately, you know, worked. And so again, even, even that, that was, I don't know if you've seen video of my college mechanics when I kind of threw out of a slide step because that was me simplifying, take the leg lift out of it. I had my back foot internally rotated because I found that gave me the best numbers, helped me utilize my, my glutes and dissociate my hips a little bit better. Like my mechanics were very much like a Frankenstein set of mechanics that happened organically over just testing thousands of things Oh, that felt good. Like the ball just rode 20 feet further on that long toss throw with that, you know, that specific tweak, I'm going to keep that. And so just that, that process times a thousand is how my mechanics organically evolved to where they were and looking different than maybe other, maybe someone who was taught a traditional set of mechanics. And so that's more, that's more the iterative approach that I took was just take what works and test a shit ton of stuff. Over that, over that period of, you know, figuring out your own mechanics, you know, you still have to play for, for coaches and teams throughout that period, um, how how was your accuracy affected? You know, did that did that have any, that cause any issues while you're trying to figure your body out? 
Yeah. So to, to some extent, but at the same time I knew I wasn't, so I, when I was a freshman, I wasn't throwing hard enough and I wasn't throwing strikes either. So it was like, it was, it was an either, I wasn't good enough at that point. So I could have either taken the route of, okay, I'm going to just be like an 83 to 86, like strike thrower. I'm going to figure out how to be as repeatable as possible. And like, that's going to, I'm just going to get stronger and just whatever happens, happens. I'm going to keep these patterns. But I looked at my, my patterns. I looked at how I moved and I looked at how these guys who threw 95 moved. And I just saw such a large disconnect that I knew I had to, to some extent, allocate my effort where I was going to have the most long-term benefit. I've always kept more of a long-term approach than a short-term approach. So it's like, I couldn't try to figure out how to, you know, go from walking five per nine to three per nine this year and prioritize that. Or I can prioritize, and I look at the command stuff as like, whatever your current patterns is, it's your, whatever your current patterns and movement solutions are, it's like, uh, solidifying those and learning to be more repeatable in those specific sets of patterns. But the second you change, you have make a major change to your patterns. You almost have to like relearn that command process right. and re ingrain that new set of patterns and timing and everything. So I almost look at that as like the icing on the cake. Once you found your, your optimal patterns, once you found your patterns that work to be able to throw hard and roughly in the zone, now let's solidify that set of patterns and be, and go from here to here. Once you've, once you've settled on that. So I looked at that, I looked at off speed, like all that was almost secondary. Obviously we had to work on it. We were throwing bullpens with the team. Like I was, had to be competitive in games. So, you know, maybe that got 20% of the attention and fixing my movement patterns was 80%. But I don't like thinking of it as like, oh, I was just working on velo. I wasn't right. working on velo. I was working on movement efficiency. Velo is a byproduct of movement efficiency. It's not just going and doing like a hundred running pull downs a week. Right. And just trying to throw your arm off and like right. saying you're doing velo training. The, the point was to move more efficiently because I knew if I could move more efficiently, transfer energy more efficiently, it was going to take stress off my arm. The velo would come as a byproduct. Um, I love this quote from Robert Stock. I just reposted on Instagram a few, uh, a few weeks ago, but he said when his velo went up, his command also improved. And I noticed the exact same thing because it was more efficient sequencing. The arm was better on time. The, the pelvis, the direction of the pelvic rotation was, was more in plane. Like every, everything just syncs up better. It's so much easier to throw strikes. Right. Again, I'm not talking about super, super fine tune uh, control, but when everything's synced up and the planes are in the right, the right plane of rotation, the pelvic rotation, the torso rotation, and then how the arm unfurls, it's so easy to be in the zone. And when the timing's off, when the arm's down at landing or the pelvis is just pulling off to the side, it almost doesn't matter what you can do, what you do, you're going to have command issues. You're going to have trouble consistently repeating that. And that's an important point in regards to short and long-term development. If you have a kid who's in the middle of a season and, you know, like last year, I'm working with a kid who's a high schooler, he's throwing really hard and he's in the pursuit of a division one scholarship and potentially even a draft uh, mm -hmm. choice out of high school and the way that I'm going to work with him especially while he's going through these various tryout camps and he's got to throw in front of scouts is going to be very very different than the kid who is throwing 70 miles an hour and is a junior in high school and a lot of times the parents are like well he you know he's got to throw strikes and I agree right. he's got to be able to perform on the field but ultimately it depends on what his goal is in the future if his goal is to perform in high school and be competitive, you know, that's where we got to focus our efforts. But if his goal is to get a college scholarship and he's kind of in the prime time to get looked at by schools and he's focused more on, you know, his accuracy uh, in one game rather than his accuracy, velocity, 
and his off-speed pitches in you know a month and a half when he's actually going to be throwing in front of some of these coaches or scouts or that when he has the opportunity to uh, be observed by um, some college uh, college coaches you know the approach is different and the approach and how you can you know work with mechanics is uh, is different as well in terms of what we're focusing on how big the changes are how many things we're doing at once and you know what we're doing in the other components of training um, which kind of leads into a talk on uh, I've seen some of your posts before on summer ball versus training when you know when do you make the decision or when do you make or give the advice, Hey, it's best to play summer ball or it's best to uh, get into one of these um, training programs or start working on X, X and Y, I guess. So like you mentioned, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray areas. Um, I think I, I lump summer ball in with showcases, at least for high school kids, because it's, it's kind of the same thing. Summer ball is more of a exposure route that you can take once you're, uh, quote unquote ready, like for whatever level you're trying to play at, once you're roughly, uh, roughly prepared enough to be the type, to be a prospect for that level. I think it's a, it's a good time to start competing a little bit. Um, as long as that doesn't shoot yourself in the foot too much for, for your long-term development. So if you're trying to play division one baseball and you're throwing 82, like there's almost no point. I mean, with some, within some reason, there's almost no point of going to all these lengths to try to get exposure because you're throwing 82. And so I think until you have a on-field product that is at least close to the level you're trying to play, it doesn't make a whole ton of sense. Um, The exception to that would be, I think that every player needs to get a little bit of live game action every year, no matter what, even if they're, I'm not saying like you shouldn't play summer ball until you're like 18 years old. So I still think it's important to not get too far away from the game. Like I've seen some players who they, you know, they see, okay, training matters. I need to throw 90 to play in college. And so from like 15 years old to 18 years old, they throw like five live innings. And so then yeah. they get, they get too far removed from competition. And then it's just a massive transition once they do get into a college somewhere. And then they're just, they're the guy who just throws the ball into the backstop every time. And they've got, they've gotten too far away from it. Same thing as like, if you're going to do an art movement pattern and arm strength, or whatever you want to call it, velocity program in the off season, there needs to be some throwing to a partner at some point in that you can't just throw into a net and a wall for mm-hmm. six straight months and expect that to perfectly transfer to the game. You can't get too far removed from an actual competitive environment. I'm not saying 12 months out of the year need to be spent competing, but probably three months out of it, you should be playing if you're in high school. And if you're getting that, if you're getting those innings in your, with your school team in the spring, you probably don't need to play summer ball if you're not ready yet. But if you're, if you're a guy who like pitches an inning for your school team, it might make sense to, to find a summer team that lets you pitch once a week. Yep. So you can still continue getting, you right. can still, so that, that's a good kind of compromise for a lot of guys. They don't get a ton of innings in the spring, same for college guys. So I still want them to throw two to three months live that year. And so we'll find a summer league in most cases, unless it's the Cape, if they get the chance to play in the Cape and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. go play in the Cape. Like that's yeah, right. That's, right. Yeah, but if, if you're at that point, then you know, you're already fairly advanced. Um, so we'll find a summer league that uh, allows them to still focus on their training while also getting live outing. So like in college, I tend to discourage guys from going to like the Northwoods, for example, where it's just so much travel. So com- like the, the ability to train or do or do anything else or recover anything um, is there's just such a, a skewed uh, I don't know, risk reward or whatever you want to call it. You can't focus on development at all. 
in a league mm-hmm. like that. But if you have like a local league that's still pretty competitive, you can get your one to two outings a week. You can still maybe do a bullpen on your own time to work on some other things. Uh, you can still get good training, good lifting in. You can be on somewhat of a consistent schedule so that you're not just, you know, you don't know if you're going to throw Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday every single week. You can get a consistent outing time every week. There's a lot of good situations that we've been able to create from keeping guys in. Maybe they could play one league above where they are, slightly more competitive league, but have no control of the training environment. So sometimes right. that's the case, and sometimes that's good for them to push them a little bit, and then sometimes you know that they're still eight miles an hour away from where they realistically need to be if they're going to be a draft prospect or going to be a Division One player like they want to be. And so you have to prioritize that training while still getting them a little bit of, of live experience throughout the week. And Bye. for all the list, sorry, Carter, um, for all the listeners out there, understand that we're three uh, former pitchers uh, sitting here and position players, the discussion changes. So, um, you know, the, the things that you're going to need to improve and the things that you need to develop are going to be somewhat different than a pitcher who has a very specialized um, skill set and, being in a live game environment uh, is a tremendous uh, training tool for fielding and hitting. And you have to see live pitching um, consistently to be able to um, compete against live hitting. So uh, the discussion changes somewhat. And so just for all you listeners out there, understand that, um, you know, there's a lot of variables to consider. And if, if you are a position player, the things that you're going to need to consider are, uh, a bit different um, from that of a pitcher. hundred percent. Yeah. And for those who don't know, like um, we work with probably 98% of our, our athletes are pitchers. So I know a little bit biased in terms of all the, the advice that we're giving. So, um, but, but anyway, does that answer your question about summer ball? Just yeah. Kind of absolutely. General philosophy. My, um, uh, my, go ahead. my, uh, my hat's off to those coaches too, that work in unison with, you know, other components in the training system and, and let you come and throw one game a week, you know, and then do your work, the other work you need to do on, on the other days during that week. It it helps. It helps if you, it helps for whatever talent level the athlete is. If you play down half a level from that, then usually the coaches at that new, that level are pretty accommodating because they're the, you know, they're the best player on that team or one of the best players on that team. Um, So, you know, a guy who could play in a more competitive league, just going to a slightly, uh, slightly lower league. Those coaches right. are ecstatic to have someone throwing like 88 in that league. And so they're a little bit more flexible, but if you're going to like a Cape Cod league, like they're not going to, they're not going to deal with that. Like you're on their, you're on their schedule if you want to play in that type of league. Right. right. And going off of that point, um, you know, you mentioned some of these summer leagues like the Northwoods and stuff, their seasons extend, you know, almost throughout all of summer. I remember guys having a tough time, you know, taking some rest throughout the whole season with your guys, how much downtime do you, you typically uh, prefer annually? Yeah, again, it, it depends. It's, it's such a gray area. Um, usually it's between two and eight weeks of, of away from max effort throwing. Um, you know, sometimes it'll be as much as 12 weeks away from max effort throwing, maybe eight weeks totally off from throwing, and then four weeks on ramping back. So that's 12 total weeks away from max effort throwing. Um, And then for guys who are, again, at certain inflection points in their career where maybe they're a high school senior who's throwing like 78. And so they got to get to 85 by the spring or their career or whatever, whatever, whatever number they're trying to get to, they have a a finite amount of time that they need to get there or their career is over. And so then you're weighing the risk reward of, okay, well, I can take a few more weeks off or I can use that towards training. Maybe I've elevated my, my injury risk slightly, maybe not. 
Um, but I don't really have the luxury to, to take that time off. If you're in that, that type of situation, this is like your college senior scenario where they're throwing 87 and they're not really a draft prospect, but if they gain three miles an hour, they are a draft prospect or whatever the scenario is. Um, so for those guys, we'll be a little bit more aggressive for a 14 year old kid. I mean, it's, it's way more on the conservative end for a kid like that. They don't need to be throwing you around by any means. So for those kids, we might take 12 weeks totally off from throwing another month to on ramp. So that's 16 weeks away from max effort throwing sometimes even more if it's like a 13 year old kid. Uh, we don't train too many of those by the way, but it, we'll again, see, it, it depends we'll on the scenario. Amount. You know, with uh, injured athletes, I mean, we'll see guys as young as nine and 10 coming in. Um, and I would say our biggest age group, I don't know what you'd say, Carter, probably 13, 14 in terms of injuries. Yeah. And with these kids, you know, they have, I almost call it like, uh, like a pseudo stress. They, they, they feel like there's this stress to constantly perform and it's real for them, but uh, pseudo in that they probably shouldn't have it. So they're almost like that high school senior who's got to get ready for college, except they're 13 years old and they're, right. you know, they're playing, they're playing summer ball and they, they're, uh, they tell you their goal is to play pro baseball or their goal is to play college baseball. But um, the way the environment is set up for them, their, their real goal is to play, you know, at the very, very tip top level of 13U baseball. And then now they're injured and they're um, devastated. And even with these kids that we see that are coming in injured, giving them some time where maybe not totally off, but maybe we're working on rotator cuff strengthening and we're working on how they throw at a lower percent exertion. And they're, they feel like I'm not doing enough. And you know, they're constantly used to this overtraining environment. And now they're in an environment where they're limited in how much they do and the intensity at which they do it. And they do it for six, eight, 12 weeks. And now they're back into that high intensity environment and their performance is way elevated because they took care of the things that mm -hmm. needed to be taken care of to begin with. Um, and that kind of leads into a talk on periodization here. And, you know, there's a lot of different theories on periodization and variable training methods. And I kind of just wanted to pick your brain um, on that and how you may program for a guy who's in college and uh, kind of vary the focus of training throughout the year. Sure. So I even go, I even go more kind of macro than that. Um, so, you know, what, what is the focus of that year or of that off season? versus necessarily like, what's the focus of this month? What's the focus of this week? Um, the general progression is hypertrophy, strength, power, speed. So that's, that's kind of the general progression. Um, we're, if we're not, we're not going to take a 150 pound kid and try to give him all sorts of, you know, absolute speed, you know, power movements at that point, because he doesn't have the ability to apply a high, high amount of force anyway. So first thing we want to build the size to uh, support that, uh, that force production. So we're going to take that 150 pound kid and try to get him to 180. Let's say he's six, six foot. Or we're going to take a six foot three kid and try to get him to 210, 215. So we're trying to build up the, the lean body mass to support the actual uh, absolute strength levels. And then from then, from there, we're trying to actually be able to apply that high, high amount of force at high velocities. That's more of our power focus. And then from there, we're trying to be able to apply that high amount of force at like very high velocity. So we, we basically transfer down uh, the strength speed continuum over time. Uh, within the actual year, so even if it's a kid who he's still relatively novice, he needs to be working on just getting bigger and stronger. As we get closer to the season, we still will move slightly down that curve and give them a little bit more power emphasis work preseason. 
just because we've seen we've again performance doesn't matter that much when you're 15 like it doesn't matter if, but we still do it just because it helps them to be feel a little more explosive a little bit more powerful and confidence you know. confident but yep. at the end of the day it doesn't really matter much what stats you put up as a 15 year old like to them it does so we you know we'll do that but we really look at it as, as far as like the four-year plan the macro plan um more of our advanced guys advanced college which is a lot of what we deal with is 19 to 22 year olds who are already throwing 90 plus or 88 plus and they're they're trying to get drafted a lot of them have already been lifting heavy for three to five years they're already squatting 350 plus pounds already deadlifting 400 plus pounds most of them if if they're not already well past our strength thresholds that we kind of established they're very very close to them and so we might only need a couple months of strength emphasis to kind of check that off the list um, once we establish these strength thresholds then we'll still do enough to maintain strength but the focus shifts significantly to power and then ultimately strength speed and then ultimately to speed strength and then ultimately to absolute speed so our super monster pro guys who can deadlift 450 pounds like we're not trying to get them to deadlift 550 pounds right we're not trying to get them to bench press 315 pounds there's a point at which what's going to get you more of an actual on-field benefit and what's the risk reward do we want to add 50 pounds to your bench press and spend six months trying to do that and maybe get hurt or can we you know is that going to benefit you more or adding you know five miles an hour to your Medis, upper upper body medicine ball throws like which is going to actually impact your velocity impact your f- performance for the better and when you kind of explain it to guys like that they they get it they're like oh yeah i mean if i could if i could throw five like five miles an hour harder on all these upper body throws like yeah that makes sense like what's closer to what's ultimately you're getting more specific and we run into these problems where um you know people like you're saying here, they, they think the answer is, Hey, I need to be able to throw the ball a uh, hundred feet farther. I need to be able to, you know, squat 200 more power, deadlift another 50 pounds or whatever to, to get to some specific metric that really was probably created in an arbitrary manner to begin with um, rather than kind of identifying their primary limiting um, factor to their performance or their their biggest limitation um, that's preventing them from getting to that next level. So with these guys that you're seeing uh, more specifically, like uh, the college guys and the high school guys or the, you know, the guys that are getting ready to go to college, what are the most common things that you see that are limiting their uh, either their velocity or their overall performance? Yeah. So you touched on it there. Like a lot of it is an over, over reliance or, uh, you know, believing that just because strength work got them to a certain level, it's going to get them to the next level on top of that. So there's usually a huge buy-in when a guy has gotten from like 75 to 85 or from 80 to 90, just by squatting, deadlifting, bench pressing, doing chin-ups, long tossing, like just doing, you can use very simple formulas and metrics and you're going to unlock, again, it's kind of the Pareto principle. It's like you can unlock 80% with about 20% of the work. Right. Like if you just do something that's like decent, you're going to get 80% of the way there. You're going to be reasonably advanced for what your potential could be, but that's not optimal. That's not going to get you from intermediate to advanced. That's not, again, that's not why MLB players are throwing 95. It's not because they all squat 600 pounds. It's not because they all reverse lunge three times, you know, three times body weight. They don't, none of them do. So, you know, there, there's a, there's a huge point of diminishing returns, but it's, it's difficult because 
these players have such strong buy-in because they've like, they found something that works and it works and it gets them from, you know, point A to point B. And they're like, okay, now I just need to get from point, you know, get from B to C using the exact same methods. And the problem is it doesn't work that way. So you almost need to like, you need to graduate them from that and explain to them, okay, now it's much more about uh, the transfer of training, the specificity, the, the speed of movement, rate of force development, the movement quality. You have to shift. It's like a total paradigm shift that they have to go through. Like, okay, now strength doesn't matter as much. Like you need to be able to get out of that meathead mentality that you've developed over the past three years and switch it to like, I want to be like the most explosive athlete possible. And that's a difficult mental shift for a lot of athletes. They still want to go as heavy as possible all the time. And with a lot of these guys, they've never been, and this is what Carter and I were talking about uh, earlier today. In fact, they've never been on a train, any sort of structured training program. They get on a structured training program and they have a training effect and they improve by six, seven miles per hour. And now they, like you're saying, they think that that is the way to just keep going and keep going. When in fact, probably could have been on just about any training program and improved because they hadn't been doing anything structured prior. Um, so then that's where specificity in our approach, as well as yours, that's when it really um, comes into play is with these guys who they've kind of been on a structured program, but they're not getting the results that they were previously. Um, and so, you know, if you were going to give, if you were going to give one thing that uh, you see missing from people's training programs that really needs to be considered maybe an idea or some sort of training implementation. What would that be? The one thing that's missing. So I think a lot of athletes, uh, to your point, a lot of athletes don't necessarily have a structured program. They've never been uh, assessed from kind of a global, global perspective to see, okay, what are my actual you know, limiting factors. How do all these things connect? How does my how does my mobility affect my mechanics? How does my lifting and strength levels? How does that affect my mobility? And like all this stuff is interrelated, and no one's ever been sat down and explained how it all connects. Like, how does your inability to get any hip internal rotation on the table here affect your mechanical issues that you've been having for five years that you can't seem to figure out with your pitching coach? Like, how does your you know poor power production in the weight room affect your inability to you know? transfer that to the mound like no I would say having an assessment and a program that actually covers all the bases uh, is, is the biggest issue but again it's hard to give like one specific thing because our whole approach is let's look at the macro let's look at their nutritional habits let's look at their mobility joint by joint through the entire body let's look at all 60 things that we look at in their their mechanics um, how they how they actually move their body when they throw let's look at their power production their strength levels head to toe let's look at everything Let's grade them on it. Let's see where are the deficiencies and then let's build a program around those specific things. I like that. And so you need to be able to identify an athlete's limiting factors versus just assume that it's absolute strength that they need to work on or just assume that they need to long toss or assume that everyone needs to do pivot pickoffs or assume that everyone needs to, you know, do weighted ball training or assume that everyone needs to do uh, whatever pull downs with the exact same ball weights as the other kid or even do pull downs at all. Like I, I, I it'd be, diff it'd be, disingenuous to give you an answer like oh everyone should be doing this drill like this right, drill is amazing right, no. because it might be amazing for one guy but it might actually screw up another guy like i just posted on instagram about this someone asked so there's a whole controversy about like some certain constraint drills and for example Rollins, you know there's data that on certain guys they actually make them worse and i 100 believe that because we've had athletes that you give them Rollins and it makes them worse like especially athletes with 
poor hip internal rotation. Like, and it's all how they initiate the throw and then exactly. the sequence that they follow from there. So if they initiate in uh, the incorrect way, they're going to follow the incorrect pathway right. through the rest of the throw. They're dealing with their own structural constraints, but they're also dealing with, you're dealing with how that athlete interprets the movement. You could have an athlete like me for many years where like I had the mobility to do it. My structure, I technically could have moved my body to throw 95, but my brain had no in, real interpretation of how to, how to sequence things correctly to do that. Sometimes you have an athlete who literally their structure won't let them get into certain positions. Like even if they had the right, you know, uh, neurological pattern, like their body won't let them do it. And sometimes there's an actual, just a patterning issue, like in my case. And then once I figured out the unlock and figured out the feel, like, it clicked and I was fine. Um, but the point being, I can't just be like, everybody should do Rollins. Because right. No, I, that's a great answer. Because yesterday um, we interviewed Dave Tomsich, who's the director of sports rehabilitation for the Pistons Performance Center. And he was actually our, one of our biomechanics professors. Um, and his thing that he left us with was discover the why. Um, and his, his thought is, why is this person moving this way? Is it a structural limitation? Is it a... Um, you know, the way they learn to move, is it the result of some other um, impairment in another uh, location, remote location in the body? So his whole thing that he left us with was uh, look for the why. And, you know, kind of one of the best sound bites was him talking about the physical exam always accompanies his uh, biomechanical examination and his 3d motion analysis and all of these things. Yeah, so, it ha- and it has to, it has to, has to understand to. how it all, at all, and I'm not saying that we have it perfectly figured out because we don't, but you know, that there, there's hundreds and thousands of, you know, very finite details um, that, you know, there's, there's all these correlations and you can't even hope to start drawing them if you don't have all the information at hand. Right. And so, you know, we, we almost, <laughs> we kind of look at it like if you're a mechanic, doing like a car inspection they have like hundreds of little things that they're checking. And then if, you know, if one thing's malfunctioning, they're not just going to the immediate source. They're like checking everything because they know that this influences that and that influences that. And if you right. change out this part, it might affect that. And so you start to go from this very like crude, like low resolution map of like this athlete's performance to you start to get a higher resolution, just better picture of how everything's influencing everything else. The, the point is, again, we're, we're basically looking at dozens and dozens of different variables. We're trying to use that to inform how the mobility screen is actually affecting, and not just mobility, you know, stability, um, but how that screen is affecting their movement patterns and how their strength, all their strength metrics are affecting their movement patterns and their in-game performance. And so we're trying to piece together all these different facets and as best we can figure out, okay, what are the top limiting factors? What's the lowest hanging fruit? And then we're going to build their program around that with their weight room exercises are, if that's a strength emphasis, a power emphasis, a speed emphasis. Um, you know, we're going to look at what maybe drills they need to be focusing on. Do they have a lower half issue, a back leg issue? Do they not know how to control their pelvis? Uh, do they have an arm action issue, an arm timing issue? Like what are the mechanical limiting factors? Why are those happening? And then from there we'll program out their, their throwing program is going to be specifically tailored towards their movement. It's not just here's the same five drills that we coach the same and give to every single guy and everyone throws these ball weights and, everyone has to do plyos and everyone has to do pull downs. It's not at all that it's like, okay, let's understand how you move. Let's understand the assessment. Let's work to fix those issues. But now we need to repattern that. And so we'll have a whole like feels progression specific to the athlete. If they have a front leg blocking issue, there's a whole feels progression that they'll go through different medicine ball throws some slow motion. Then, you know, 
full speed medicine ball progressions that they'll go through um, before they even get into their throwing. And maybe their throwing has two, three, four specific drills and specific versions of those drills for guys who have front leg blocking issues. And so we're building it out depending on the guy's specific issues. And so to your point, like you have to understand the why if you want to have any hope at all. Because even with everything we're doing, like there's a percentage of guys who, you know, everyone's going to plateau. And so all we can do is create the best plan that we can based on our hypotheses, based on what we find, test it, see if it works. If it's not working, we got to make an adjustment. And so everybody at some point in our program hits a plateau. It's not like everyone just gains a mile an hour a month, like times infinity. Like you're going to hit a plateau. And so then we need to kind of go back to the drawing board, see what's working, what's not. Um, a lot of times if you created a kind of a backwards chaining or drill progression for a guy, there's, there's a, a somewhere in that sequence is where the breakdown's happening. So let, let's say a guy has a really soft front leg, a terrible front leg block. And we've kind of created a, a micro progression for him. And he's just, he's gotten really good at the first three progressions. Just front leg is, is doing its thing. And he hits, he hits the fourth progression and it just starts, it starts reverting. So it helps us to see like where in that, where in that sequence his pattern is breaking down. And so we can kind of, we can kind of backtrack a little bit. Sometimes it's that you're going from, uh, you know, drill work to like he has to throw in fall games for his coach too soon. And so his, his pattern just isn't ready for that. And he's, you're throwing too many variables at him. And so his pattern just kind of reverts. Yeah. The, and the, yeah. Just to highlight a couple things um, that you said there that I think are really important for everyone listening here. Ben was talking about, taking a movement and almost doing uh, starting at the end of the movement and working towards the beginning with a progression that the athlete can use prior to performance or prior to a bullpen or in their warm-up procedures. And a lot of times I know I get questions where, you know, athletes talk, they're in the season, they're, you know, practicing with their high school team and they're saying, well, I don't have time to do these extra throws. And so realize that these are getting you ready for your practice. So if you're in warmups, you can be working on these things or even before practice starts, you're working on these things at a lower intensity. And there's a, uh, I guess a phrase called grease the groove and you're greasing the groove. You're getting ready. You're retrieving motor patterns and um, neurological recruiting (laughs) patterns that then you can implement when you actually get into the practice or into the game more easily and subconsciously where you don't have to think about it. So just for all you listeners at home, you might want to go back and listen to this part again, because I think that's uh, very, very important. Um, yeah. What Ben was just talking about how using these things can be, you know, they can be an entire workout or practice themselves, or they can be preparation for your um, performance or practice. A lot of people, I feel like a lot of athletes throw the train, but not a lot of them train to throw. And I feel like you need both of those components in, a, in an athlete's uh, progression. Two yeah, other that, points. Real, real oh, quick, just, just to go off that point, like I, again, we kind of get like the, the athletes who have really bought into lifting weights and they, they come in like with that meathead mentality and we have to break them of that. You also have athletes that come in with kind of that mentality as it applies to velocity training. They have this like intent-based mentality where – They've been told like, you know, Bernstein principle, body organizes itself to achieve the goal. Like every throw you make has to be max effort to, so that your body will, you know, organize itself to achieve the goal. And they're just over, they're overtraining constantly. And not only that, a lot of them have muscling up issues where they don't actually let the sequence of the throw, the sequence of the kinetic chain work. Because again, they've been told every throw max effort or even their, their 50% throws, you watch them throw on like a recovery day and they're throwing like 
88% effort. They're just like, yeah. it's there. And they're, they're exhausting one, that one component so much of their progression when, you know, in reality, if that might not be the problem, as you mentioned earlier, it might be, it would be a lot more beneficial to look towards, you know, another component of their training. And, and they don't, they don't let the, they don't actually let the whole kinetic sequence work most of the time. Like if you're doing a pivot pickoff at hundred percent effort, like don't like, we don't have anyone do that because the, the whole point of that is to block the upper half, block the lower half from the upper half and just work on patterning an upper half issue. But it's not a drill that you ever need to do at max effort because you're never going to throw max effort out of that drill. You, what you need to do is learn to delay the upper half from coming into the throw until the hips and pelvis have done their job. The front leg's gotten down, like everything's sequenced in the proper position. We don't do arm action drills at hundred percent unless like a guy has a broken ankle and like, that's all he can do. And you have to integrate that into their full throw. And a lot of times people see these things and they think that this is what they need to do. When reality, this is one uh, stepping stone on the entire pathway. And you know, it has to be used to get to the next step. Yeah. I have to explain to guys like intent is very, very little of what actually goes into throwing harder. Like what we're really trying to do is improve movement. We can improve movement efficiency, the velocity will come. Or we can just take your crappy patterns that you're muscling up and, you know, get you 5% stronger and just like get your intent up like 3%. Yeah, you'll gain like two miles an hour because you just are trying to throw as hard as possible. But that's not sustainable velocity. That's not actually improving the under, like if you're, if you're throwing 85 and we just throw a bunch of weighted balls at you, we might be able to get you 87. If that's all we do, just like cue you to throw as hard and grunt as hard as possible every throw and get your score injured. Get your squat up 20 pounds. Like, yeah, you're either going to get injured or, yeah, we can squeeze out a little bit more of those patterns that you have. Or we can take a step back. We can reconstruct the major movement flaws to the patterns. And now your ceiling goes from 87 to 92 because we've actually addressed the, the fundamental flaw in your movement patterns and your, your sequencing. The, the low-hanging fruit. Yep. Exactly. And, and so it, it takes – and I was stuck in this rut for, for years. Like, again, Paul Nyman, huge influence on me. But one of the things I misinterpreted from what he explained was, you know, intent matters, your body organizes itself. And if you just try to throw hard all the time, your body will just naturally find these optimal patterns. That's not the case for almost anybody, maybe for maybe a little bit more for kids, because kids aren't dealing with this long, uh, you know, injury history. They're not dealing with all sorts of compensations and, and things that have kind of built up. Um, Eugene Bleeger talks about how kids don't have a strength base, so they don't really have this alternate route that their body can take to start to compensate. When a kid's starting to build some strength, he can use that strength to kind of muscle his way right. to, to higher performance. When they don't have that, they have, they have no alternative but to be more efficient and be, use their sequencing if they're trying to throw harder. And that's what we ha- see with have softball players because we'll see a lot of uh, softball players um, overhand throwers as well as uh, baseball pitchers, and you got to think the softball – to a eight-year-old girl is a lot different than the five-ounce baseball to an eight-year-old boy and the uh, ways in which he can sequence his throw to uh, get the ball to the intended target are, um, I guess the variability is much larger compared to that uh, eight-year-old girl with the heavier ball where she has to organize into a couple maybe one, maybe three different ways um, to actually get that ball to the intended target. So we see some very consistent findings in the softball players that actually ended up injured um, and where they went a little bit uh, away from where these other softball players um, sequenced their mechanics and didn't end up injured. So 
Um, you know, it's kind of interesting that you brought that up because the, the stronger baseball player, the baseball player with the lighter ball, there's a lot of things he can get away with because ultimately the environment is going to be a huge uh, determinant of how we move and the self-organizing principles are great, but we have to, if we're going to abide by some of that stuff, we have to organize or constrain the environment in specific ways to get these specific adaptations. Um, and you mentioned the Bernstein principle uh, there as well. And, you know, we could talk about uh, said principle or Wolf's law or all these different things. We could probably make an entire podcast uh, just on those and how people have taken them to the extreme. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think people a lot of times are, are taking things way too far and way out of the realm. And then they end up, um, I tell everybody, they, they got to stay. There's a gray area where success occurs. If you're on one side and you're in the white or you're on the other side and you're in the black, you're going to run into problems. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example of that just as it relates to, to ball weights. So when we do, not everyone that trains with us uses plyos or weighted balls, but the ones that do, um, so to your example, just for people that maybe don't uh, are listening, but don't understand exactly what, what we're talking about. Like think about throwing a football, a football much heavier than a baseball, but it constrains the potential set of patterns that you can have significantly with a, let's say a wiffle ball versus a football with a football. There's only so much you can do. You can't like hook the ball way back behind your body. Like you're pretty much going to have a pretty consistent arm path because of the, the nature of the, the ball that you're throwing. With a wiffle ball, I mean, you can hook the arm behind the body, you can wrap, you can over-rotate, you can throw the ball from your hip. Like, you can do all sorts of inefficient things, and your body's able to get away with it because that implement is so light, because you can just override it with muscular strength without needing efficient sequencing. But with a football, you can't, you can't just throw a football from your, from your waist and get away with that. You can't just flick it with your wrist. So you need to use the kinetic chain to your advantage. You need to have relatively more efficient energy transfer with something like a football. But that being said, so let's look at plyos. You have like a four pound plyo ball, you have like a three ounce plyo ball. What we'll see and what we'll use the heavier balls for is to kind of remap arm action or and reinforce the efficiency of those of the arm path. Let's let's call it that. Um, so the heavier balls give your body give your body and your arm more immediate feedback in space. It's heavier, you have you have more feedback, you can really feel the path that your arm's tracing with a heavier ball. You don't really know where your arm is with a wiffle ball because it's, it's, it's such low, it's, it's a low level of feedback, um, low level of proprioceptive feedback. So the heavy balls are great for that. But then, like you said, there's too much of a good thing. When we see young kids throwing a two pound ball or even like college athletes throwing a two or four, we don't use four pound balls for this reason, but when you go too heavy, then athletes lose the ability to actually stay true to that, that sequence. So, too heavy, think about like throwing a bowling ball. You can't actually keep the same mechanics that you would be able to if you were throwing a baseball. The optimal set of mechanics for throwing a bowling ball is going to be way different than the optimal set of mechanics for throwing a baseball. So there's a certain degree of specificity. If you go way too heavy, your arm starts pushing, your elbow starts climbing, you start using your tricep to accelerate the ball, and that starts to get very, very far away from the set of mechanics we're trying to train, which is mechanics that are going to transfer to throwing a baseball efficiently. So if you get too far in either direction, then that optimal set of movement solutions gets too far away from that. We don't want to be throwing a wiffle ball. We don't want to be throwing a bowling ball. Where is that gray area? Well, four pound ball, we've seen 99% of guys threw that up. Okay. We chop out the four pound ball for any overhand throws. Two pound ball, every kid that throws it screws them up. 
some college guys can get away with it. They have the, the strength, the ability to sequence, and that's, so that's fine. But there is such a thing as too heavy. And that point is, when does it start to actually get away from the beneficial patterns that we're trying to reinforce? When can, and you cannot relax into layback when you can't actually keep that same loop of energy, that same arm unfurling pattern. Like once it gets too heavy or once it gets so light that the arm just starts losing its path. Um, again, we try to stay like relatively close to the weight of a baseball, a little above for patterning, a little bit below when a guy needs to work on more arm speed, relaxation, and, and, and quickness. Um, so I think that's a, that's a good example of what we're talking about like in the abstract. Carter, you got one that's more? Absolutely. Um, do we have time for one more? It's up to Ben. Ben, you got, I, I got, I got some. I got some for you guys too. So you, you tell me what you want to do. All right, we got one more for you, and then all right, we'll get into it. So um, your views on long distance running? I saw you've had. You mentioned you had some experience cross training with cross country and baseball in the past. Can you discuss maybe what you learned from that experience? Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, it's impossible to nearly impossible to gain any appreciable amount of muscle mass and strength. I mean, I, I was able to gain 10 or 15 pounds over a couple of years um, while still training for cross country. Um, and again, I wasn't even a guy training super seriously for cross country. Like this was running a few miles a day. This was biking, a, you know, a few miles a day. Um, very, very difficult, especially for an athlete who's a little bit of a faster metabolism guy like I was. Um, you know, I did gain some weight on about 4,000 calories a day, but I realistically needed about 5,000 calories a day in high school. Um, if I were to put on the size and strength that I really needed to, and I didn't realize that at the time, uh, when I got to college at 180, 185, that was finally explained to me, like put in perspective, um, the, the, not just like, okay, there's all this 50 different variables that like everyone always throws at you when you ask about nutrition, it's like, you know, uh, calories, macronutrients, how much protein can you absorb? Like water, like vitamins, mineral, like you get thrown all this stuff, but it's never put in really an order. So you don't know you don't fully know what to focus on and what matters the most. But finally, like that was explained to me and I gained 20 pounds in three months, getting 5,000 calories a day. Uh, for all the listeners out there, there's a common thought pattern that we got to get rid of lactic acid. And so we'll go for runs after um, throwing. And, you know, this is something that has been kind of a tradition in pitching. But what we know now is, you know, lactate's a normal thing to have as a result of anaerobic training and you don't have enough oxygen. You create pyruvate and that uh, loose proton or that hydrogen actually attaches to the pyruvate, which is, an, which is a potential energy for the cell. And then we develop lactate, which is, uh, can be used in aerobic metabolism. So uh, it's actually an energy source that's kind of uh, lowering I'm sorry, raising the pH of the blood, preventing it from getting too acidic. And uh, it's being pegged as a, uh, um, I guess, a limiter in performance and endurance and a bad thing that we need to flush out when we know, in fact, it's not still there later on. It's an energy form that's uh, trying to compensate for increasing acidity. So, um, you know, for all you guys who are still adhering to got to flush out the lactic acid. Uh, you know, I think it's time to kind of throw that by the wayside and understand we do need uh, aerobic performance and aerobic capacity as well, but there's a lot of ways to achieve um, aerobic endurance. If you're pitching a two hour game or an hour and a half, you're going to need some aerobic energy. And we also know it 
increases healing times and things like that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to achieve it. You go stay in your target heart range and things like that with other training uh, modalities, including the best of all aerobic training for a throwing athlete is throwing in a simulated game or uh, practice scenario. So, yeah, that's, that's where I was going with that. Uh, so thanks for, I guess, getting things honed in on that. Um, but yeah, basically that's what I've come to over time is that you don't need an excessive amount of aerobic training. And what little you do need to for have a basic cardiovascular base, um, we do movement circuits like you talked about. Um, Cal Dietz with triphasic training has a, what he calls a contralateral movement circuit. But the idea is like as long as you're getting your heart rate in, in that specific zone, you're going to be getting an aerobic cardiovascular effect. And so it doesn't have to be just steady state cardio running, um, you know, long distance running. You can be doing circuits with lunges, rows, push-ups, glute ham raises. Like you can still be getting your heart rate up, mobility work. Um, so there's a lot of things you can do to still get that effect without needing to just put a ton of pounding on your legs and just do something as basic as running. But despite the, yeah, like a, it's not a lactic acid clearance, but I think there was a old school observation that, maybe running, doing some sort of uh, active recovery seemed to have a uh, recovery benefit. Yeah. I think that's the takeaway. And I, I do agree with that. Having some sort of active recovery will have a minor recovery benefit, but 100%. it's not for the reason that old school coaches use as their mechanism and rationale, but it doesn't mean that you should never, you know, do a 20 minute bike ride the day after throwing or that you should never do anything that gets your heart rate elevated. It's just, yep. doesn't have to be cardio. It doesn't have to be two mile runs every day. A hundred percent, hundred percent agree with that. So that's kind of what, uh, you know, we have for you today. Um, I know you said you had a couple questions, uh, for us, and then we'll finish up with our, uh, our last leaving note from you. So. Awesome. I guess we could, we could do like, uh, what do they do? They do like a one word or a one word or one sentence response. You know, I'll give you some yeah. topics and you tell me your, your response. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, thoughts on weighted balls? Um, intriguing. Thoughts on high speed uh, slash co-contraction training um, as a return to play requirement. Do athletes need to do these high velocity, maybe co-contraction type movements um, before they would be cleared to get back into throwing? Yes, it depends. My answer. What do you got? Okay. Carter? I would say yes. It depends as well. <laughs> okay. Um, this is a more in-depth question, but where rehab or return to throwing programs get botched the most? Um, we see it all the time in, in, at the pro level. Athletes get surgeries, um, have injuries, and you know they come back and they're throwing five miles an hour slower and no one can seem to figure out what went wrong. What's the most common thing that you guys see that goes wrong? I would say lack of individualization. We can expand yeah. on that one a little bit. I was going to say the same. They're, 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 they're giving you mass amount of throws without looking at – or they're, give, they're scheduling the amount of throws you do without looking at the individual or tissue healing time or in, in a bunch of other factors. So, Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the surgeons that we work with uh, – because I would say we see about 50 to 60% um, injured guys. A lot of the surgeons we work with just let us handle all the return to throw. They basically say, here's what I did. Here's the surgery. Um, you know, here's a few things that I actually had to do a little different in this one or whatever. And, um, you know, just let me know how he's doing. 
Um, and that's what I see probably about 70% of the time now, because we get so many guys from uh, some of the surgeons that we know. And, you know, with that, you know, we're always looking at how they're adapting to things. We're looking at how much we're programming other ballistic training things and upper body plyometrics in combination with, uh, you know, the return to throw program. And really, these return to throw programs, I guess I said lack of individualization, but another important one that may be even uh, more important is they never address the way in which the athlete threw that led to their injury to begin right. with. Um, yeah. And so the athlete threw a certain way, they got injured, and now they're throwing the same way again um, with a tissue that's even more compromised because we know the number one risk factor for injury is previous injury. Mm. And so tissues are compromised. Um, they're less durable. You know, you have an artificial UCL and there's gapping that occurs greater than the native ligament or you've torn the rotator cuff and now you have um, some collagen infiltration into the tendons there and that tissue can no longer endure this, the same tensile load um, as it could originally. And you're going back and putting the same stresses on it that, uh, injured the stronger tissue. So, um, you know, change the way you throw, individualize the training is all ultimately the most important things and improve the limiting factors, which has kind of been, um, what we've talked about on this whole podcast. Awesome. And I got two, uh, two products that, uh, I think are controversial and I just okay. want to get like, good or bad or like just, uh, quick oh, all right. Uh, maybe we not controversial talking. is the right word. Okay. First one, arc wave. Arc wave. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with it. I don't, I'm not familiar with it. What is okay. ArcWave? I don't even know about it. Just, I'll, I'll send you some information on it. I, okay. I just, I'm curious. So it's one of those more controversial things. Um, okay. Number two, shoulder spear. Shoulder spear. Uh, I think it's useful in certain scenarios. Um, Carter, do you know what it is? It's is the, the ball. Yeah. With ball? the, yeah. yeah. Um, useful in certain scenarios. Uh, similar um, principally to the, uh, body blades or the shoulder tubes, um, and that they're originally designed to increase the number of contractions in a specified period of time and also the co-contraction. Um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily what it's purported to be, but I think it's a useful thing, especially at certain times in training. And I think it could be a useful tool, um, in warmups, but it definitely doesn't take the place of, uh, a lot of the concentric eccentric sure. work and um, more high intensity rotator cuff training and things like that. I, I, I asked that because I, I talked a little bit to, uh, to Stephen Jones. I don't know if you follow him. He's a pretty um, well-known like cricket bowling coach. He's on Instagram I think a lot. I, I think I might have him on LinkedIn actually, but. So he'll, he actually has studied it, done some in-house studies with it on, as far as like a potentiation uh, tool for his, his throwers. And so he's seen a potentiation effect uh, in his throwers and, you know, two or three mile an hour equivalent increase in his cricket bowling, uh, speeds. That's interesting. So, and that, again, I've had one for a while. I always thought it was more of kind of just an alternate for a body blade mm -hmm. uh, or a shoulder tube. Um, it seems to be something that you can do max separate though, a body, a shoulder tube. Like it's something that you can't really go full speed. Yeah. That seems to be the main difference. Um, so I was just curious if you guys had a, a feeling about that, but again, I'm, I'm with you that it kind of, seems to depend on the scenario. Yeah, I, I kind of like it more um, in the warm-up scenario. Um, 
and any of those uh, oscillatory training things, whether you're using a gel ball against a wall and you're doing, you know, taps or you're doing the body blade or any of that stuff. Um, I think it, especially in the rehabilitation process, it has a specific place, which is, I think it's extremely useful when I can't take somebody through um, an extended range of motion or the full range of motion due to a painful arc. And then I can actually train them at a fairly high intensity in a pain-free range of motion um, and get some muscular fatigue and uh, activation in that range. Well said. Awesome. Well, I will, I will stop talking there as I'm <laughs> sure we've gone over our time limit, but I'm, I'm sure we can keep going for hours. Yeah. Uh, just really quick before you go, is there one thing that you want to uh, leave the listeners with um, as they're either on a journey as an athlete or as a clinician or coach? Honestly, just keep learning. It's a trial and error process. Um, I don't look at, you know, failures as failures. It's just opportunities to learn. So, um, you know, I'm still on my own journey through all this. I'm actually getting hip surgery next week. I'm, I'm actually still pursuing my own career, believe it or not. No one knows that because I've been out of baseball for four years, but I've had a string of injuries. I'm still that kid who was going to keep trying out for his college team if he didn't make it. So I'm, you know, I was thrown up for 90s two years ago, I had a string of injuries and starting to get to the bottom of it. But, you know, failure isn't really failure. It's an opportunity to learn. There you so. have it, folks. That's the mentality right there. So in the name of Overhead Athletics, Max Wardell, Harder Kowalczyk, signing off. Thanks, guys.